great to be gathered in the Word together with you guys this morning. And so our message will come from the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. And the aim of the passage, the aim of the message this morning will be uh, an attempt to get at the aim of the passage. So we'll read the scriptures. We will make some observations and applications from this text and others. But our primary focus is going to be in on Nehemiah chapter 9. So I want to begin with prayer, and then I will read the inherent, infallible, inspired Word of God. Father God, we approach your throne this morning by grace, that is by your favor in us and for us. We need grace right now, Lord, to enable our ears to hear what the Spirit speaks to us. Lord, grant us enabling grace and the power of your grace to obey all that your Word commands us this morning. We ask, Lord, that you be glorified with all that we are doing here together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Nehemiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1, and I will just read the whole thing through verse 37. You're going to say chapter 9 has 38 verses, um, but there's a reason for that, because verse 38 will take us through our next message next week. So uh, I will read uh, verse 1 through Verse 37. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Benai, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Cadmiel, Bani, Hashbaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, the Girgashite, and you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they had acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst and told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. 
They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud led them in the way that did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples, and allotted to them every corner, so they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let, all the hard, let, not, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. This is the unchanging word of God for us this morning. So to get some context of where we are and where we've been, Nehemiah has led the people to build the walls of Jerusalem, and he did so in 52 days. The people have now occupied the city once again, 
And God has moved in them and has moved in their hearts uh, to give them a desire to hear God's law again, to hear his written word again. And we saw that God is the initiator in the lives of his people, that God must turn the heart to desire him and to desire the things of God because we saw last week that the natural human has no desire for God. No one, not one, seeks for God. So our text this morning makes it really clear that salvation is all of grace. Salvation, to use a long word, is a monergistic work. And that is to say, in other words, it is God who saves people. It is God who alone who does the work of salvation. The only thing that, that uh, people of God bring to their salvation is the sin that made salvation necessary. This has caused a great heartache between some friends of mine who have decided not to be friendly with me anymore when I say this statement, that the only thing we bring to our salvation is the sin that made salvation necessary. That we want to be cooperative in this work of salvation, and it is not so. God is the one who works salvation. It is his to give, and it is his he gives by grace. And as we have looked at this story, and we see... Uh, Israel, time and time again, right? God bestowing goodness upon them. And they're stiff-necked, and they can't save themselves, and they can't, and they cry out to him, and he hears them, and by grace, he gives them relief. And again, they sin again. But God continues to be gracious and merciful and kind to them. So, I want us to get this, that a decision that a person might have made for Christ, a raising of a hand to the call of repentance and faith, a walk down an aisle, whatever sort of outward sign you may have performed, it contributed nothing to your salvation. You see, salvation is by grace. It is not by any work that the human can do so that no man may boast before the Lord. It is God's salvation. No man may boast before God. But these outward acts are just a response to God's inward work of grace in you. So when we say yes to the Lord, it is because God has graciously already worked in us. That God has done a work in us. The desire to hear God's word is the Holy Spirit has done work in you already to make you receptive to hear and see his word. Our response to the call to repentance and faith is that grace that has worked in you already by God's doing. See, it's all about God. This is a God-exalting um, message, a God-exalting understanding. You see, since salvation is by grace and not of works and no one can boast, we want to look here in our text this morning that this is foundational to understanding grace. You see, biblical grace is not a license to sin, as some might suppose. Uh, biblical grace is not about passive acceptance of our sin or the sins uh, and failures of our brothers and sisters to fail to live according to holiness. Grace is not passive. Grace is not about acceptance. Grace is not a license to sin. The doctrines of grace are all about the glory of God. All about the glory of God. The doctrines of grace are about the authority of God. The doctrines of grace are about the holiness of God. The doctrines of grace are about the sovereignty of God. The doctrines of grace are about the love of God for sinners. The doctrines of grace are about God's saving love for those he chooses. The doctrines of grace teach us that God saves his chosen people completely, ultimately, utterly, 
He doesn't just save us a little bit. He saves us all the way. That's grace. That is God's sovereign work of grace in us. He doesn't save us just to make some one-time response of raising our hand, and then we go off and live whatever. God saves us all the way, completely. God's grace is about God and His holiness and His glory. The doctrine of grace teaches us this, that God saves His chosen, He saves them completely, that God is the initiator of our salvation, that God is the one who sustains the saved. God secures salvation for all of those that He calls. He takes them all the way. So I want to look a little closer at verses 1 through 4. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Canaanai. And they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. See, uh, one of the things that we also want to look at, I want us to get this too, is that, so we saw that the people of Israel had this renewed desire for God's word, right? So they were the ones who went to Ezra and said, bring the book of the law, right? God had done a work in them already, and they had been uh, spiritually malnourished. They had been uh, starved for the word of God for 70 years. They hadn't had this worship had been uh, taken from them because they had been uh, in a foreign land, and now they're brought back, and, and, and God, by His Spirit, gives them a desire to, to have the Word of God again in their hearts. And as we see in this text, this idea that these uh, folks come to a point of confession of sin um, is another thing that, as we look through history, last week's message made me think of the historical great movements of the church in like the Great Awakening in the 1700s here in the United States, right? Where there was this uh, new desire for God's Word, this new renewal of the people of God, and this is a, is a work of God, and they had this desire for God's Word. And this, this passage makes me think of the renewed idea to reform again, to go back to the truths of grace. And any great movement that we've seen in the church over the centuries has been a return to the doctrines of grace, to the true sovereignty of God and salvation. So Israel here is armed with a new desire for assembling to hear the law of God. And when they hear the law of God, when you hear the, the word of God, and I hope this morning that this is true for you and for me, that we are confronted with the authority of Scripture, that it is authoritative. Not what Jeff is standing up here saying to you as authoritative, but what I say from God's word to you is authoritative. It is God's word. It is to be heard. It is to be listened to, and it is to be obeyed. For a quarter of the day, they hear the law of God, and they are confronted with the authority of Scripture. Because you see, just like Hebrews says, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and of the spirit, of the joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Think about this, the word of God is being read to them for a quarter of the day, and the assembly who is hearing the law of God read to them are pierced through the heart. They are pierced beyond the bone. 
They are pierced down to the soul, even to the point that their very thoughts and their intentions are now exposed before holy God. God's word is spoken and we are exposed before a holy God. It penetrates deep to our soul and even to our intentions and the thoughts of our minds. We are exposed before God when we are under the authority of Scripture. So under the authority of Scripture alone, the people here are confronted with the nature of God and contrasted with their own fallen nature. For the next quarter of the day, then, they confess their sins that they've inherited, even the ones that they've inherited from their own fathers, not ones that may, maybe they necessarily committed, but they are confessing the sins that they have inherited from their fathers. When the people of God hear and understand the word of God, remember this from last week, soft, receptive hearts become sorrowful for their sins, right? Hard, impenetrable hearts, they do not, but soft, receptive hearts become sorrowful for their sin. Well, this godly sorrow, though, as we saw last week, is a source of rejoicing. This soft, receptive, repentant heart that receives the authoritative word of God as it is, that it is the very word of God, just to receive God's word and have it penetrate and, and, and get down to the bone and get to the soul and get to our thoughts and get to our very intentions is a great grace. It is a great grace that God would convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment, isn't it? If we heard the word of God and were totally indifferent to it, it seems as though God has withdrawn a grace from us. But this penetrating Word of God is a great grace shown by God. And on these holiest of days, you see, he's telling these people, you have caught a glimpse of the glory of God through his word. And the people of God rejoice in the Lord's day. And the people of the word rejoice at the word. They rejoice in it also when it, when it confronts. They rejoice in it when it corrects. As well as they rejoice in the word when it comforts and it assures. And so as we look at the bulk of this passage, verses 5 through 31, we see that the people of God, Israel, the chosen people of God, they have a heritage of grace. It is a heritage of grace. You could look at it and say, it is a heritage of sin, isn't it? Because you see over and over again their failure. But you see that side by side over and over again with God's deliverance of them. They are a people who have a heritage of grace. If it were not for grace, the people of Israel would have been undone a long, long time ago. Throughout Israel's history, their great need was, and their great need is in this day, God's intervening grace. And this section is just one long praise for the grace of God toward them. And it begins with the Levites calling the repentant people to praise. When we look at verse 5, Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashbanai, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah and Pathiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And then what follows in this passage is a history of God's grace contrasted with Israel's depravity. It begins with, You alone are God. You alone create and sustain the earth and all that you created. Out of all the earth's people, you chose for yourself a people through Abraham. You have kept all of your promises to your people. You have made an everlasting covenant with your chosen people. You are righteous. You saw us when we were afflicted, 
And you heard our cries when we were enslaved in Egypt. You declared your might by performing signs against the arrogant oppressors of your people. You've made your name known in all the earth and especially and specifically to us. Your name still stands as the name above all names. You led us to safety and to freedom. You came down on the holy mountain to fellowship with your people. You spoke to us through your law. You made your presence and your nature known to us. You have made the way of holiness known to us through your law. You gave us sustenance in the wilderness. You gave us a land to possess. You forgive us. You are gracious to us. You are merciful. You are patient. You are long-suffering. You are loving. You have never forsaken your people. You disciplined your people in love. You gave us your spirit to guide us. You have not withheld any good gift to your people. You subdue the enemies of your people. You deliver your people. This is all that God has done in this whole section. And it's followed by a but. But we are a people chosen in Abraham, an idol worshiper. After all you've done for us, and all you are in us, we presume upon your grace and refuse to turn to you. Even when you have showed us forgiveness and mercy and steadfast love and did not forsake us, we forsake you in worship. We traded that worship which was real for a golden calf, and we committed great blasphemies, declaring that idol as our deliverer. We have cast your law aside. We killed the messengers and the prophets that you sent to warn us. We are rebellious and disobedient. You sent saviors to deliver us, and after a short time that we turned to you, we rebelled yet again. You abandon us in loving discipline to our enemies. You rescue us, and we rebel. You deliver us, and we stiffen our necks. You warn us, and we presume upon your long-suffering, turning a stubborn shoulder to you and to your law. You bore with us through much rebellion. And even in discipline, our repentance was short-lived. You delivered us over to Nebuchadnezzar, and for 70 years we have been displaced. We have lost our identity as your people. But you did not make an end to us. You are merciful, and you are gracious to a contrary and rebellious people. This is the doctrine of grace. God is sovereign in salvation. Salvation belongs to Him. It has been proved over and over again in the history of Israel that they were incapable of contributing anything to their salvation aside from this sin that made it necessary. Israel is un not unlike any of us. We who are the chosen of God are not chosen because of works done in righteousness, works that we've done in our own righteousness, but we are chosen by grace. The beginning of the doctrine of grace, the black velvet backdrop, if you would, of the beauty of our salvation, is that humans are radically depraved. They're not just a little bit sinful. They're radically, radically depraved. Humans are deviled by sin in every way, in their minds, in their emotions, and in their will. Our every inclination is to sin and rebel against God and His law. An unregenerate human is unable to please God and ultimately does not even desire to do so. Abraham could not choose God because his every inclination was to deny God and to worship a God of his own choosing. But God chose him. 
The second, this brings us to the second point in the doctrine of grace. Since mankind is incapable to choose God because of their radically depraved state, if mankind is to be saved, God must choose a people to save. God must choose a people to save. This is known as sovereign election. God's choosing any of us is grace. Since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and not one, no, not one, seeks for God. The intervening grace of God is needed. You see, those radically depraved chosen people of God have particularly and specifically been redeemed by God through the atoning death of Jesus Christ. See, Christ Jesus did not die for those who might potentially be saved, who could have been saved but then were not. Christ's death atoned and appeased the wrath of God for those whom he chose. The radically depraved, helpless sinner upon whom God chose mercy instead of justice. And this grace that God has delivered is irresistible grace. This grace is irresistible. The Holy Spirit was sent to convict, call, and regenerate the people of God's choosing. No matter how stiff-necked, no matter how stubborn-shouldered, no matter how hard-hearted any one of you are hitting, sitting here this morning, God's plan of salvation cannot be thwarted. I don't care how hard your heart is towards Him. I don't care how stubborn you are or how stiff-necked you are. Since God is the author of salvation, His grace is irresistible. You cannot resist it. You might fight it for a time, but ultimately... If God intends to make you one of His, you will be one of His. Well, since God uses human means to accomplish His plan of salvation for His elect, here's something that we should think about. We should never, ever, ever discount anyone as unsavable. We should probably never, ever, we should never, ever discount anyone as unsavable. We should never give up hope. We should never give up hope that the Lord will one day turn our rebellious church member, a rebellious God-forsaken family member, or our neighbor into a born-again, blood-bought believer in Jesus Christ. You see, the elect of God will never finally and ultimately reject the grace of God in saving them. As we saw in our text, that God's grace preserved, God's grace sustained, God's grace renewed, and God's grace returned the people of God to himself. God's elect are saved completely. If the once radically depraved sinner, born again by grace of God, could lose their salvation, the truth of the matter is, they would. If you could lose it, you would. If you could let your salvation go, you would. And this is good news. This is good news, folks, that that grace secures that salvation, that it was all of Him anyway. If it's all of God's work to grant you salvation, and it's all of God's work to keep it, you can't lose it. You cannot lose it. The elect of God will never finally and ultimately reject the grace of God in saving them. And as we saw from our text, that God's grace preserved them, it sustained them, it, it preserved them all the way to the end, the work of God in saving us will preserve us all the way to the end. But since salvation belongs to the Lord and by His grace, God is not impotent at all in securing the salvation of His elect. He will not lose one. 
that he has saved. The people of God are grace chosen. They are grace delivered. They are grace disciplined. They are grown in grace. They are preserved forever in grace. And as we know from this truth that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And as we listen to what Paul writes in Romans 5 concerning our inheritance sin through Adam compared to our imputed righteousness by grace in Jesus. Listen to this. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that sin reigned in death. Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So I want to ask us to ponder this question in our own hearts and minds today and this week. Are you a person who is marked by a history of grace? Or is your story today a story marked by rebellion, by sin, by a stubborn heart towards God. If that's you, there is great hope for you today. If you sit here this morning and are convicted of sin, you're convicted of God's righteousness, you are convinced that you deserve judgment from God and it hangs heavy on you. If you are convinced of that, today, God is calling you. He's calling you to confess your sin and your rebellion against Him. To turn from your rebellion and to believe in your heart that Christ Jesus died for your sins. To confess with your mouth that God raised Him from the dead. That you have been regenerated to new life. That you are a vessel that God has saved by grace. This is if you genuinely believe. And all of us who are sitting here this morning, who are chosen in God, we owe it to grace. We may feel a need today to confess our sins and we know that by grace He hears our cries and that He is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness and He will preserve us and persevere us in grace. And grace marks the past for the people of Israel. Grace also marks the past for us who are chosen in Christ. As we look at verses 32 through 37, we will say Israel's present and future need will be in God's current and continued grace. 32. Now therefore, our God, the great, mighty, the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let, all the, not, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and yet its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great 
distress. You see, now their plea is to God to give them relief from their current situation, from their current oppression that they have in the land. Behold, he says, we are slaves. But they confess this, all that has come upon us is not because God has been unfaithful. All that has come upon us is because we have sinned. We have disregarded your word. We have disregarded your warnings. We have been unrepentant and wicked. We need your undeserved personal favor, God. That is their cry here. We need your undeserved personal favor, God. There's nothing in us that you should grant this to us except that you chose us and we are your people. So they cry out again for God's grace. We need your undeserved, unmerited personal favor. Our sin has caused our great distress. When we look at the state of the world today, I want to ask us this question to ponder. And I pondered this all morning on my drive out here, just thinking about this. Are we more uh, uh, distressed by the conditions that we live in and by the circumstances of life that we are under? Or are we distressed by the ways in which we have sinned against our holy God who has been nothing but gracious to us? Are we distressed by sin? Notice these people were distressed by sin. Think about this. For a quarter of the day. Imagine that. A quarter of the day. They stood and confessed their sins and the sins of their fathers for a quarter of the day. I think that confession of sin amongst the brotherhood and um, amongst church is um, kind of a, a, a bygone thing. We don't do that much anymore, do we? And I, I, think we don't, I think we don't do that because of one thing. We're not very gracious one to another. We're not very kind to one another when someone confesses sin to us, we, we hold ourselves up holier than them. Somebody confesses a sin, I would never. Yeah, you would, you liar. Of course you would, right? But we want to appear as though we have it all together. So we need to be as gracious to our brothers and sisters as the Lord has been gracious to us and merciful to us. It's not, and again, it's not that we wink at sin and that we say it's okay. But it's, that we tell the truth in love about that to one another. And we warn when we need to. We correct when we need to. When we look at the state of the world today, I hope that we are distressed by the sin that brought us here. In Second Chronicles, the Word of God tells us what we are to do. It says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. I think it is time for the people of God to humbly appeal to the grace of God, to confess our collective and our individual sins, to repent and place our trust in the faith in God's grace currently, and God's grace in the future. We can be confident in God's grace for us in the future, can't we? Because it is God who has been gracious to us in the past. And God is unchanging. His nature is unchanging. And I bet you if you look back and think about yourself and think about the, a, the history of grace in your life, when you think about all the times when God was gracious and merciful to you, when He showed you favor, undeserved personal favor toward you, 
you can look back upon that and go, man, I thought I was in it. I thought that was it. I thought that God would abandon me for sure. But he was gracious and merciful and restored you, did he not? That is something we can place our faith and our trust in in the future, right? That God will not change. The God who was gracious to us in the past will be gracious to us in the future if we would turn our hearts, turn our stiff necks and stubborn shoulders back to him once again.